0: Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Thank you guys, for being here this morning, thank you if you're not here. Um, some of you for not being here because you shouldn't be here because you don't feel well. And there's enough of you that don't feel well <laughs> that I anticipate are tuning in now or later. Um, that I'm going to pray for you because uh, we. This is probably the this the most folks that we've had not feeling well at one time. Um, so Father, I do lift up um, a few families that are that have a positive COVID um, diagnosis, Lord, and I pray um, for healing for them, God. I pray that you would um, sustain them, that you would heal their bodies, that they would fight off this infection, God. and for others that that just are not feeling well with other things, um, and uh, and pray that you would heal them as well, Lord. And pray for for us as a church um, that we would rally around people uh, appropriately and and help them and meet their needs um, in this time. So we lift them up to you and pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. And if you um, if you are it, you're not feeling well and you need anything, please let us know, and uh, you know that we would love to help you out. So. Um, uh, a few things before I get started with my um, with my message, um, Eric and the Oak City Serves team wanted to wanted me to, to tell you this. We uh, before um, Thanksgiving we asked for some turkeys for the Smithfield Rescue Mission. You got seventy six turkeys and um, a little under a thousand dollars to help them buy turkeys, and I think they were genuinely not overwhelmed and not necessarily surprised, but like really, really appreciative of the generosity of the church. And some people rallied and got their neighbors to bring turkeys, which was a fantastic idea. And next year we'll suggest that um, to rope the people around you in on that. So that was great. And we gave uh, 100, over 100 gifts to the Dream Center that were given out yesterday as part of their Christmas, Christmas outreach. So thank you for doing that. Um, coming up in the next few weeks, Christmas Eve, our service is going to be at 5.30 on Christmas Eve, so join us for that. We'd love to, to have you here. We will not be having a Sunday service on the 26th, so don't be here for that. And then we'll be back on January um, 2nd. A few things just to look forward to or look out for. Um, coming up in january we're going to do a 31 days of prayer or just a prayer initiative um and and have a bunch of things that we'll text out every day or push out through the app every day that we're we're asking you to pray for and so um we'll send something out this week and ask you to sign up for that and commit to pray uh for some things in our church and our community uh throughout the month of january and then we have done this the last few years and it's it is a simple thing but it's It's as effective as anything we've done is we've done a Bible reading challenge every year. And and we probably did this five, six, seven years ago. Um, How many people have been have taken part in that over the years at some point? Lots of you. And it's great. We do it through version. You can comment on it. So it's a little bit of a conversation that happens amongst us and spending time daily with God through his word. Is just as effective a habit as you can have to to grow yourself spiritually, and so I'm probably going to put out a through-the-Bible plan, which is three or four chapters a day, and then and then put out a series of smaller plans that are like a chapter a day. So kind of a if you feel like this is what God wants you to do, and at some point you should read through the whole thing. Um, if you want to bite, you know, take take that on, um, that'll be an opportunity. But then um, a smaller, more of a beginner plan. So um, be, uh, on the lookout for that, and it's getting to the end of the year, we're probably about 10% behind our, our budget for the year, or, our giving is probably a little over 10% behind, we're always there at the, at the end of the year, and, um, and God always works it out, and, uh, so just keep us in mind if you're, end of year giving, if you have some catch-up giving to do, um, that would be super helpful, and as the Lord leads you, okay, we're in the series called The Four Mothers of Jesus. It is based in, out of the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 1, where and this is not a thing that happens in Jewish genealogies, that there are four women included in that genealogy. There's Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Um, and it's, it's amazing that they're in there, and it's amazing that these stories are in there, and they're meant to tell us something about... Um, about Jesus, and so we're going through um, each of those stories. Before I begin this story, and today we're going to talk about Ruth. I just ask you a few questions: Have you ever gotten to the point in your in your relationship with God where you prayed to God, "Hey God, what what are you doing right now?" Anybody been just to kind of a point of like, I don't know what's going on here, or and that's kind of devolved into a God, "Are you doing anything right now?" And if you go long enough in that. There is like, a God, are you there? Um, And I don't think you have to walk with God for very long or trust God for very much. We walk by faith, not by sight, that it's pretty natural to get to those places. And that's how God grows your faith, but those are hard places to be. And Ruth's story fits in that space in our lives. So Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. This is another way of saying once upon a time. Um, Ruth is a short story. Uh, People have called it one of the finest written short stories, not just in the Bible, but in all of literature, because it's a beautifully written uh, story. It is an historical story set in the time of the people of Israel. And so it says, in the days when the judges ruled. Um, two weeks ago, I preached about Tamar. Tamar was during the time period when the Israelites were a family of Abraham, and they were going down to Egypt. Uh, Weston preached about Rahab. That's when they're coming back out of Egypt into the promised land of modern-day Israel. This is when they're in Israel, um, but they don't have kings yet. So it's before Saul and before David and before Solomon, and um, and God was their king. But God would send judges to, to um to help them through different crises that they would face. So that's the time period um, of, of the story. But that time period is described in Scripture as a time when every man did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, they were struggling to figure out how to follow God and not doing it well. And that's going to be important as we go through this story. Ruth is not, the story is not monumental in moving um, the story of the Bible forward now, Jesus—it's the genealogy of Jesus, so it's monumental in that way. But God, there's not going to be armies conquering territories. God's not going to speak visions about the future in this story. Really, it's an ordinary Israeli family struggling for their survival, and that's good because we are ordinary American families struggling to figure out what it means to follow God right now. So I'm going to go through this story, and I'm going to use—I um, found some scenes. Um, just the people had done over the years, some black and white scenes of these stories. I'm going to use four scenes, and after the third scene, I'm going to make three points, and then we'll get to the fourth scene. But here is the first scene, and this is um, Naomi, Ruth, and, and Orpah. So, as I, as I read in the story just a second ago, a guy and his wife, there's a famine in the land of Israel, so they go to the land of Moab. Um, the wife's name was Naomi. She's in this picture. The men aren't in this picture. I'm not even going to bother with their names because they die really quick in the story, and so it doesn't matter. Um, they decide to move. Here is a map of Israel, and so you can get some context on Moab. Um, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of um, Judah, those are both Israel. Jerusalem with the star there is right where Bethlehem is. That's where they live. And then if you go across the Red Sea there, the Dead Sea, there's um, Moab, the kingdom of Moab. So this is all the kingdoms that are traditional enemies of the Israelites. And so that's where they end up going. There's a famine. They need to figure it out. And so they end up going into the land of one of their enemies um, to make it work. Here's another picture of Moab. Uh, this one I took myself. So about 10 years ago, I had the chance to go to Israel. Some of you are at a place in life where you're taking super cool vacations. Israel should be on your bu- your bucket list, <laughs> and especially if you've been following Jesus for a while, because when you go there, all the stories kind of come alive at a different level. So when I took this picture, I am in the hills of en the caves of En-Gedi. en is where David ran and hid from Saul, and so you're on this mountainside looking at these caves, thinking one of these is where, like, you know, David cut off the edge of his robe and decided not to kill him. It's crazy. And looking across the Dead Sea, and that's Moab over there. And Moab looks today a lot like it probably looked back then. It doesn't look like that changes a lot, does it? And so that's where they went. Um, that's where they went. Um, going to Moab was likely not a great decision on, uh, on their part. The famine was probably some type of discipline that God was bringing on Israel um, because every man was doing what was right in their own eyes and instead of waiting that out they decided to go uh, to Moab and when they go to Moab their two sons marry Moabite women um, and that is less than ideal not because Moabite women are any worse than Israeli women or American women or whatever it's just that they follow a different God and God was was really concerned about that <laughs> you know, he wants you to follow him and when you put yourself when you immerse yourself in the life of folks that are following other gods then you're more likely to do that and so that was um, his prohibition against that because he knows how fickle we are. So they move to Moab, their sons marry Moabite women, and then all three men die. The father and the two sons die, and Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law, and we can go back to that picture, Mason, um, his two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Now they're all widows. A couple weeks ago when I was talking about Tamar, I talked about why it's such a such a bad, precarious situation to be in if you're a widow. They are not going to go to college. They are not going to get corporate jobs. They're not going to get any jobs at all. Um, They are dependent upon family for their survival. And there is no family because all the men have died. And so these three widows, that's a bad situation. Uh, And Naomi hears that God has relented from the famine in Israel. So she decides to go back from Moab to Israel and the, and the girls, Ruth and Orpah, decide to go with her, and she does everything she can to convince them not to go with her because she knows when they go back to Israel, they're Moabites. And so they will be outsiders in the Israeli culture. Their chances of finding a husband um, are slim when they go back to Israel. And she, she tries to encourage them to go back to Moab because that's what's best, not for Naomi. What's best for Naomi is they come with her, but what's best for them is that they go back to Moab. And Orpah is the one that is going, and you can see she's distressed about this, and that's how the scene would have played out, and Ruth is the one that's with Naomi. And Ruth makes this declaration, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you from where for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God, which that's going to be a really critical line. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. It's a beautiful story, and, and, and just an amazing declaration of, of loyalty and devotion, and when Naomi saw that um, she, Ruth, was determined to go with her. She said no more. So they go back to Israel. Now they've got nothing. They go to Bethlehem. It's been 10 years, but the people barely recognize Naomi because it's been 10 hard years. And, uh, and Naomi actually says, don't call me Naomi. I've changed my name to Mara, which is a pretty name, but it means bitter in Hebrew. And she says, because the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. And that's her judgment on the situation. Um, and she wears it on her sleeve. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She's lost a daughter-in-law. She's lost her possessions. um, She's lost her future. And she can't see where things are going. But she still believes the Almighty, but, but probably barely, right? Have you been there, but maybe not as honest as Naomi is being about it? Have you been through A time, times in life where you've gone through a season or seasons that seem to, like, stack on each other, (laughs) that are hard. Uh, Things haven't gone your way. You know you've brought, some of it is, like, self-inflicted. You moved to Moab when you shouldn't have. You know what I mean? You made some bad moves, but not all of them. In some ways, you feel like you've been faithful. You can't see how what seems like a punishment to you fits the crime. Uh, And if you're honest, um. You think you deserve better from God Uh, and but you know at the same time you don't because you know about the cross and you know about the gospel and so you end up emotionally stuck wondering what God has done what God is doing and what God is going to do has anybody been there yeah listen I look around this room and I know too much to not know that you know what Naomi knows right don't lie to your pastor I know uh, how many of you have been in that situation and what those situations have looked like. You know what most of us do when we get to that place? We dress up a little nice, put a smile on, and go to church. <laughs> That's what we do. And we have tried hard to cultivate um, an atmosphere or relationships, really, where you can be honest with that. Not with everybody, maybe, but with you've got some folks that you can really grieve with. And you can go to, and you can be honest with, but there, is, there are just times where you push through that, and there's something to be said for Naomi or Mara's honesty. Now, they get there, and there's something to be said for her and Ruth's persistence as well. So they get back to Bethlehem, and Ruth the Moabite says to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after him whose sight, in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said, go, my daughter. So that she goes and gleans. Gleaning is something that we don't know what we're talking about, but gleaning is is hard work. She goes into the field, and there are folks that are harvesting the field, but then the gleaners will go to the edges of the field, and they will pick up what's left over. This can seem romantic. We see pictures of this, and it seems a little bit romantic. If you've never farmed, farming seems romantic. Um, It's not romantic, right? I grew up, and my best friend in grade school, his dad was a dairy farmer. He was angry all the time. Uh, because, because his entire life he woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning to go hang out with some cows in the freezing cold weather, you know? It's not, and so that's what she's doing. Have you ever reaped a field to its edge, or reaped a field, or reaped anything? Like, we don't have context for this, but it's hard. And she's only doing it because they didn't have, there isn't this soup kitchen they're going to go to. Um, there wasn't government assistance. They're not getting food stamps. Like, this is it. It's, it's survival. It's this or starve. Um, and it's, this is, you see um, God's provision in the Old Testament law worked out in this. So from Leviticus, it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, this is God's command to the people, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, you shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So that's in Leviticus. That's the law to the people. And here we see it getting played out with, um, with Ruth, who is the poor and the sojourner. Uh, so God tells the rich who are having a good, a good year. You know, they have a bumper crop. And he says, don't collect every last bit of it. And you know the temptation is to collect every last bit of it because there are some years you don't have a great crop. But he says, be generous with the abundance that I've given you. Be generous with your abundance. Now, they had to tithe the first fruits of that crop Anyway, and then he says, leave this stuff at the edge so that the poor can come along and collect some for themselves. Just because you're having a great year doesn't mean you should max out your credit cards, right? (laughs) There's a principle in there that's helpful for us. But you know it killed some of those rich farmers to watch those poor folks collect what the rich farmers felt was rightfully theirs because people are people, and they always have been, and they always will be. So gleaning is hard work, and that's what she's doing. Gleaning is also dangerous. Um, I'll I'll fast forward just a bit and then come back. But when she does meet this guy, Boaz, he says, um, let your eyes be on this field that they're reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Have I not told my young men in my employ to leave you alone? Now, to have hired guys that you have to tell to leave her alone (laughs) says something. Like, it's just a tough environment. And when when Ruth goes back to Naomi and tells her what has happened, Naomi says, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. Now, assaulted in Hebrew means exactly what it means in English, right? It's an act of violence against your person. This is a a dangerous place for Ruth to go out into. And Ruth is a woman with tremendous courage. She is an outsider. People don't know her. People don't want her there. We're given the impression that she's attractive, which can cause its own distinct problems with the men and the women of this new land, but she is, she is going out and doing what needs to be done for her and her mother-in-law to survive. She is an inspiring character um, in the Bible. So, scene two, um, know how well you can see this Ruth is in the foreground of this picture she's just kind of minding her own business she's gleaning the edges of the field and then you see all the people and then they've got someone prominent in the back and so the guy on the horse is Boaz and he is pictured as large and in charge so she meets Boaz Boaz came from Bethlehem he is the one that owns the field he said to the reapers the Lord be with you um, and they answered the Lord bless you. How's your boss going to greet you tomorrow morning for work? Is he going to say the Lord be with you? I'm not going to say that to people here. Like this is a good dude. Um, Boaz is a good dude throughout the story. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reaper, whose young woman is this? And that's, that means exactly what you think it means. Like, oh, hey, who's that? <laughs> I mean, he's, he is interested. And so he has a conversation with her, some not so small talk. Um, finds out she's connected to Naomi, he knows Naomi, he sends her home with just a load of food. I mean, she gets the the best of the gleanings, and then she gets some of the harvest, and he sends it back to uh, Naomi. Now, chapters two and three, there's four chapters in Ruth. Chapters two and three are structured the same way. So at the beginning of the chapter, it's Ruth and Naomi, and they're hatching a plan. In the middle of the chapter, it's Ruth and Boaz comes on the scene to be a part of the plan. And then the end of the chapter, they're waiting to see how it works out. The beginning of chapter two, it's Ruth saying, hey, I'm gonna go out into the fields. I'm gonna glean you know, in the fields and see if I can find favor of somebody. I don't think that was, she wasn't trying to find a man there. She was trying to find a meal, you know, and then Boaz comes on the scene and then she goes back to Naomi and they're like, well, this, there could be some potential in this. And so chapter three, they hatch a different plan. And this one is not about a meal, but it's about a man. So Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, may he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours. He is one of our redeemers, which is, which is odd language. Now, with the story of Tamar, I talked about this um, a few weeks ago, that in Israel, uh, the land and the inheritance were just huge things, more than we can understand. But God had given them this promised land, and he gave it to them by family. And so that land was supposed to stay in the family. So they did whatever they could to keep it in the family. Um, and, and so they had something called Leveret, marriage laws. Lever was, the, was a, an in, a brother-in-law, and it meant that when a man passed away, um, if he didn't have sons to pass his land to, then a, a close relative had the, the opportunity or obligation to buy that land and to make sure that his, his inheritance stayed in his name. And so two weeks ago with Tamar, her husband died, and his, her husband's brother was obligated to marry her. Here, there are no brothers, and so there's an opportunity for a close relative, a cousin, and Boaz is a cousin, to marry her and to keep that inheritance going. So the scheme in chapter 3, and this is Naomi's scheme, is to approach this kinsman, Boaz, a cousin, kin, about redeeming um, the situation or redeeming her or marrying Ruth. Uh, So what happens in chapter 3 is a little crazy. I haven't read anyone that's certain they understand exactly what's going on here, but Ruth, Naomi tells Ruth to propose to Boaz. Got it? Naomi tells her daughter-in-law Ruth to propose to this guy, um, Boaz. So she's going to go back to his place. They're having a big party because of the harvest. And Naomi tells her, wait until the night is over and he's content. He is full of food and full of drink. There's some wisdom there, Right? Um, when and where you have a conversation oftentimes is just as important as the conversation that you're gonna have uh, My wife is a nurse she works 12hour shift she's working a 12-hour shift right now um, when she comes home from work tonight we are not going to have an important conversation about anything you know sometimes when I'm like drifting off to sleep at night she'll try and have an important conversation I'm like this is a bad time to have an important conversation you know because I want my mind to like wind down and stop and so she he gets done he's 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 content, and he lays down to sleep, and this is what Naomi tells her to do. Uncover his feet and lay down at his feet, Um, and then when he wakes up and sees you there, he is going to know uh, that you want to marry him. Again, there's some custom in here that we don't understand um, that that is going on, and Honestly, as I thought about the story, that's like a little fast. You know, they'd have half a date, and now she wants to marry the guy. (laughs) Like, if my daughter had one date with a guy and came home and said, I'm going to ask him to marry me, I'd have her pump the brakes a little bit. Uh, uh, But I will note this, that they are doing the right thing, and they're doing it for the right reasons, and they're going to do it in the right way. And that really matters in a time when every man was doing what was right in their own eyes. They're doing the right thing. They're going to get married. They're not going to shortcut that. They're not going to go around it. They're going to get married. He is, and they let us know this, attracted to Ruth's character above above all other things. So backing up to when they meet, it says that Ruth fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to Boaz, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me um, since I am a foreigner? Which is, it's just funny when you think through this and think through this and think through this. Like, she's asked, why do you like me? You know? <laughs> and, uh, and Boaz says, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. Like, he knows about her. He's heard about her. And now he's putting a name with the face. And how you've left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He knows what Ruth has done. He knows the character, the devotion, the sacrifice that she's exercised towards her mother-in-law, Naomi, that she didn't have to do that. um, But she did it anyway because of of her, her devotion to her. And he knows in whom Ruth trusts. And I said this earlier, when when Ruth makes that declaration of devotion to Naomi, she says, your God will be my God. There's a conversion that has happened with Ruth. And here, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Her trust, uh, Ruth's trust, is not in Naomi. Her trust is not in Boaz. Her trust is in the Lord. And that is what's attractive to Boaz. I have a son who's gone to college. One of my many prayers for him is that he would meet a woman who loves Jesus more than she will ever love Michael <laughs> because that would be the, one of the best things that could happen to him, you know, and that's what keeps a relationship going in the right direction. And so he's, they're doing the right thing. They're doing it for the right reason, and they're going to do it in the right way. And so they will demonstrate a willingness throughout the story to trust God's ways without seeing God at work. To trust God's ways without seeing God at work. In this book, you never, you never see God intervene in a specific way. You never hear God speak to someone in a specific way. He's spoken things before, and they're abiding by what he's put in the law, and they're trusting in the things that they know, but he doesn't directly intervene the way that we so often want God to directly intervene in our moment of need. Third scene. This is the, um, this is the city gate. And so this scene is going to be a negotiation between um, Boaz and another relative. So there is, uh, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He has the opportunity to uh, buy this land and to marry Ruth. But then they're they're going to find out that there is a, a kinsman that is closer that has an opportunity. So this is kind of a sneaky scene. So Boaz says to Ruth, and now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, and now it is true that I am a redeemer. So in other words, yes, I'll marry you. This is the hallmark movie of the Bible. It really is the hallmark movie of the Bible. But wait. So yes, but wait. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Dun, dun, dun. Like, here's the tension again, you know? Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. This is the first fight that Ruth and Boaz had to have gotten into, because that's not good like, wait, what? (laughs) If he'll redeem me good? Like, you ask one guy to marry you, and you end up married to another guy? There's nothing good about that, Uh, but he is trusting the process that the Lord has laid out for them, and if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I'll redeem you. Lie down until the morning. I bet she didn't sleep a wink that night, you know, Um, and Boaz is putting the ball in the Lord's court and going to do what God tells him to do. So, Never fear, Boaz is here, and he has a few tricks up his sleeve. This is Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, and sit down here. One commentator said in the Hebrew, this could be translated Mr. So-and-so, because he doesn't matter one bit, you know, like who he is doesn't matter. He is Mr. So-and-so, and so so he says, Turn aside, Mr. So-and-so, and have a seat. And he turned aside and sat down. And then he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here because someone's got to approve this transaction. Hey, guys, come on over here and just have a seat. And so they sat down. And then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to her relative Elimelech. Nothing about Ruth in this, right? All of a sudden there's land involved. What's going on here? So I thought... I would tell you of it and say, hey, buy that land in the presence of those sitting here. Like, the whole thing is going down the drain. Go ahead and buy it uh, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you won't, tell me that I may know, for there's uh, no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. This is the definition of playing it cool, right? And so there's a little drum roll. What's he going to do? And he says, I will redeem it which means he's going to get Ruth. So this whole thing is going south. Then Boaz says, oh, by the way, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So here is not the trick that Boaz has played, but the way that he's presented the information. And this is like capitalism at work. This is America. He appeals to this guy's self-interest. He says, hey, You can get a really good deal on this land from Naomi. And the guy's like, yeah, I want a good deal on the land. He's like, but by the way, you got to have a kid with Ruth if you buy the land. And Ruth's a Moabite, and the kid's going to end up getting the land that you just bought because it has to stay in their family. And that's how the law worked. And so the guy realizes that he'll likely lose in the end because he's going to pay money out of his own kid's inheritance to buy land that's going to have to go to someone else's kids. I mean, it'll be his kid, but someone else's line's inheritance. And so the guy says, um, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And he, he possibly, probably appealed to some racism in the guy by saying Ruth the Moabite, because that's a deal. Um, even though she now trusts the Lord, like, she's a Moabite. And there is implicit racism in that culture, and it's kind of the elephant in the room. And Naomi knows it, and that's why she encouraged them to go back. And Ruth knows it, and Boaz knows it. This guy knows it, and it's a credit to Boaz that he doesn't care. It's not in his equation. And so, um, he, uh, the guy, says that he is going to, um, that he is going to turn it down. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, "We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah." who together built up the house of Israel, may you act worthily in Ephrathah, that's Bethlehem, and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman, which is another way of saying they all lived happily ever after. Um, That's the story of Ruth. Now, let me just highlight a few things um, out of that picture, and one that I've already highlighted. They... They demonstrate a willingness throughout the story to trust God's ways without seeing directly God at work. Um, They demonstrate a willingness to trust his ways without seeing him at work. He doesn't speak to anyone. He doesn't intervene directly. You don't get clear statements. Uh, He doesn't tell them what to do beyond what, what he's told everyone to do. Uh, But they abide by that. They aren't people who, like everyone else in the time of the judges, do what is right in their own eyes. They're not in the language of the garden, eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thinking that they are smarter than God. They're trusting that God knows what he's doing. Um, I think Naomi and her husband left Israel when they shouldn't have and went to Moab. But she came back, and the language is specific. It says, when she saw that the Lord had fed his people— like God did that. That's her interpretation of it. She came back, and her coming back, in a sense, was an act of repentance. Uh, and so she's doing the right thing. Naomi, when she tells Ruth and Orpah to go back to Moab, in a weird way, she is just. It's the most loving thing that she can do for them. A couple times in the um, in the book, the the idea of of the, the girls getting a husband is mentioned as finding rest in a husband, which I don't know if you're a woman and you've been married to a husband that might not be restful all the time. But like in you know in the day when they when that's just what they can't provide for themselves, just in the culture, like that's what they mean by that is finding rest, and so she wants them to go back to a place where it's more likely. That they will find rest. And they recognize that as a sacrificial act of love on the part of Naomi because it's best for Naomi to have some company, you know, to have some folks to fight it out with her. And and she resists it. But but part of what drew Ruth to Naomi is probably the love that Naomi showed for Ruth. Because Naomi, to be honest, wasn't an easy person to be around then. Like she's calling herself bitter, like that, she's naming herself that. If you've been around people that are really bitter, it's not easy. When you're really bitter, it's not easy to be around you. But there's something in her in the way that she um, composes herself towards Ruth and the way that she loves her uh, that Ruth responds to. If you've been in a situation, and you have, where you know the, what the right thing is to do, um, but it's the risky thing to do, and you're in a situation where you can do nothing and it probably be fine um, and be in better control of the situation, but there is a right thing to do uh, that you know God would have you do, And so you decide to be passive or you decide to be active. And that's what they've done is just trust God in this. Um, I mentioned in the picture of Moab, I mentioned En Gedi, which is those caves where David was running from Saul. And one of those stories um, was fantastic. Saul goes into the cave to use the bathroom. And so he's right there and David can kill him. And God has told David, you're the next king. And these guys that are with David have put their lives on the line, and they're like, surely God has put him, like he's, he's given him to you in this situation. Go kill him. And David says, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. He trusts the process that God has laid out, um, and it works out well for you, for him. Faith is the evidence of things not seen, and it's situations like this where our faith in trusting God is the evidence of things that we can't see, and, and that's what we see played out um, the system is set up for Ruth to glean, and so she participates in the system, and God works through that, but not obviously, and the way this story is worded, they just happen to come back to Israel at the time of the harvest, they just happen to go to Boaz's field, but it's not that it just happened to God is at work behind the scenes, and all those things, Ruth, or Boaz, excuse me, could have cheated the system and tried to get away with it, but he trusted that God was at work in the process, and when, uh, A young woman that he desired asked him to marry him. He said, well, I will if this other guy doesn't want to. Like, who does that? You know what I mean? Uh, But he trusted that God was at work in it. So, um, trust that God's at work, even when you don't see exactly how God's at work. And that's just the life of following Jesus. I'll say this, too, though. They exercise all the freedom that they can within the parameters that God has provided them. And so God has set the parameters, but they don't just sit back and do nothing they work within those um, boundaries. Naomi does go back to Israel. Ruth does go and glean and thinks, maybe I'll find favor with somebody. And again, I think at first she's looking for a meal and not a man, but then Naomi's like, you could get a man out of this and a good man. And Naomi is always scheming, you know, like, oh, Boaz. All right, here's what we're gonna do. You know, go ask him to marry you. That's crazy. Um, But it's within that kinsman redeemer structure that God has set up in the Old Testament law And so they work within it. Boaz, like I, I don't not understanding the culture. I don't understand how, like, tricky it is. Whatever he does with this guy, but he clearly sets this guy up and pulls the rug out from under him, (laughs) in order to to get the land, and um, to get, uh, and to get Ruth. And so they they trust God. They go to work, and they just see what happens. This story always. Reminds me a little bit of my story in that um, when I was uh, when I moved down here, which is 25 years ago, I was in my mid 20s and was single and and checked out some big churches and wasn't supposed to be at any of them. and ended up at at um, a church of like 150 people that was a bunch of young families. There were no single people there. I'm in my mid to late 20s, which isn't that old, but you're starting to see all your friends get married and just wondering. And um, and then and then this young woman a college student starts coming to Hope was the church and um and I thought, "Oh, she's cute, but she's way too young." So I just wrote it out of my mind and 6 or 12 months later we're volunteering with the youth ministry together and she asked me this and I can't remember if it was an email or a conversation, but it was awkward. She's like, "Hey, you know, you're not getting any younger and there's no single people here. Like, you want to get married or what what are you going to do with that?" And I'm like, "Well, I don't know. Like God's going to have to work that out and if he wants, you know, if he brings that person along he's Gonna have to like hit me over the head with a brick to let me know who it is. And so the day we got married, her mom gave me this brick, Uh, and I do like listen to the story. And I think I was like God had called me to that church, and and I liked it. But He called me there because He wanted me to serve there, and I came on staff there. And He just had plans that I didn't know about. Um, And I just I trusted that I would go hang out with friends from other churches, but just trusted that He was gonna do. Um, what he could do, and he did. And 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 in, in hindsight, looking back, there were some Naomi and Ruth going on behind the scenes um, between my wife, Bobby Joe, and her mom. Uh, definitely, definitely, we can talk later. Played the Naomi and Ruth part, and just working within system <laughs> to put themselves in the put herself in the right in the right place. So um, that's God. God sets the parameters. They trust the process, but they don't just sit there and do nothing. Like they do everything they can within. The, the context that God has created. And then God is faithfully working on a million things at once, even when it seems to you that he isn't working on anything at all. God is working faithfully on a million things at once, even when it seems to you that he isn't working on anything at all. Um, and, and most of the time, he's working through the things that he's already set up and told us about. And sometimes he'll tell us some specific things. Uh, And guide us in specific ways through his spirit, but he knew about their disobedience He knew about their anxiety. He knew they needed provision. He knew Boaz wanted to be married and He was gracious and at work and in the right time gonna make all of that come together and and in a way That wasn't because they deserved it Um, Naomi is just a complex figure, you know, they went to Moab when they shouldn't have she comes back if I'm her, like, I, I appreciate her honesty of changing her name to Mara and telling everybody how bitter she is towards God. Like, I really appreciate that honesty. Um, but I'm not sure I would have expected God to do a lot after that. And God was abundantly gracious to her. And she, at one point, when she realizes Boaz is this kinsman redeemer and what could happen, she says this line, may he be blessed by the Lord, Boaz, but the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And I think for her, that's when she starts to turn away from being Mara and being back to Naomi, whose name means pleasant again. The fourth scene, the last scene, is, um, is this, and it's the birth of Obed. And so Ruth and Boaz have a baby named Obed. Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, and for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And David eventually is the father of Jesus. When, they, when Ruth went out to glean those fields for hours on end and Naomi wondered if she would be okay, they weren't thinking about how God was going to save the world from its sins, but God was. God was doing a whole bunch of things at the same time. And it happens in Bethlehem. For all we know, the field where she was gleaning could be the field where David watched the sheep while his brothers went to war, and he eventually joined them against, um, against Goliath. And for all we know, the field where Ruth met Boaz is the same field where the shepherds tended their flock by night and had some angels show up and said, A Savior has been born unto you, and you guys need to get over to Bethlehem and see him. God knew all that stuff was going to be happening, and that's all a part of the story. And the kinsman redeemer is a picture of Jesus. He is our kinsman. He is our brother. Um, But he is our redeemer and the one who's rescued us from our sins.